These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Two episodes ago, King Gungunum died after growing the city of Larsa from a small swampy town to a major player in regional politics. The game of regional politics, however, continues with full fury. Ur-Ninurta, the religious strongman who usurped the throne of Isan, remains in power, and plenty of other kings have mace in hand, ready to go smash some heads. We're going to continue focusing on Isan and Larsa, since these are the most well-attested cities in the records of this age. To get us a point of reference, Gungunum died in approximately the year 1906 BCE, and at this point Ur-Ninurta is able to exercise a certain Universal in fortunes. Rather quickly, Isin marches on and occupies the region of Zabalam on the Euphrates River between Larsa and Nippur, with the king himself spending part of the year encamped with his army, doing battle with Larsa on an extended campaign which would come to last the next nine years. Likely, they weren't fighting constantly through that period. The economies of the age simply wouldn't support a conflict that extended. But both sides seem to have been making hostile moves even when they weren't sending full armies up and down the rivers. At some point, Erninurta recovered his home city of Nippur, surely a great relief to him personally, and the king of Larsa starts to look very pragmatically at his situation. Abisare was probably the son of Gungunum, though like much of this era, we can't say for sure. His succession, however, was unchallenged following the death of the previous king, so he must have been well accepted. He seems to be a pragmatic and intelligent man with a keen sense of the economic and military realities of the situation he faces. Gungunum's constant wars brought in an infusion of wealth, but they also must have taxed the manpower of the city heavily. And right around this time, many movements of Amorite nomads likely means that it's harder than ever to get mercenaries. Barely a decade previously, Larsa had been in a similar situation with the North Euphrates blocked off, thus cutting them off from vital trade routes. And Gungunum had solved that with military force, only to have have it blocked off again shortly after. Abisare decided that a more lasting approach was needed, and so he spent the first years of his reign defending what territory he could, but spending much of his manpower digging a massive new canal network to completely bypass this branch of the Euphrates and connect the city of Larsa to another part of the river. It takes vision to respond to an unfavorable geography by reshaping the land itself for a strategic advantage, but that's just the kind of man Abisare was. But at this time, the decade on either side of the year 1900 BCE, Larsa isn't Isin's only concern, and Isin isn't Larsa's only worry. North and west of Isin, the Kazalu Marad kingdom rules in the westernmost branch of the Euphrates, and would like dearly to press inwards and southwards against the territory ruled by the two stars of our show. But Kazalu takes a defeat, possibly more than one, near the tail end of Erninurta's reign, though one that's only implied by the record, not one that's actually stated anywhere. This focus on the southern end of their little kingdom, and the likely defeat, weakens the kingdom enough that in 1897, with the death of King Sumuditama, the city of Kish is able to regain its independence. 
much more significantly. At the same time, a group of Amorite tribes have been unified out in the desert through charisma and combat under a warlord named Sumu Abum, though there are many different proposed spellings of his name. Actually, there are a number of warlords consolidating power like this out in the desert, though we only know of the ones who conquer cities. The city of Kish, for example, only has about a decade of independence before it will be taken by the Manana tribe, a group of Amorites quite like Sumurubum's warband, and the city of Dur, briefly mentioned two episodes ago as conquering Eshnuna, is another like this out on the periphery of the region. But Sumurubum gets a special mention because he's setting up a warband only 15 miles away from Kazalu. He sweeps in, completely overwhelming a probably undefended fishing village, and begins to construct a wall. His vision for the wall turns out to be much greater than his resources, and it remains unfinished even with his possible death. But with this warlord, his campaigns and his constructions, the city of Babylon begins to make its mark on history. Of course, the city of Babylon itself remains so unimportant that the next three kings won't even call themselves King of Babylon. But still, this man and his successors are going to be a major part of our narrative for the entire remainder of the show, and increasingly, the region we have been calling the Akkadian region will come to be called Babylonia. Still, these are going to be a problem for the next generation. For now, Erninurta and Abisare are most focused on each other, with Erninurta employing piety and armed force to press against Larsa, who seems to be focused on defense as their canal network slowly grows, increasing the agricultural fertility of the area to the north of the city's marshes, and hopefully one day providing a backdoor for trade and military logistics. Finally, in 1894, Erninurta attacks the Larsa-held city of Adab, an ancient city of middling status. Isin not only loses the battle, but the king himself is killed during the fighting, an event which would be commemorated in the year names of the Manana kings in Kish and of the Amorite warlord in Kisura, who is now related to the dynasty forming in Babylon. Perhaps these two kings had an alliance of some sort with Isin against the common foe Kazalu, another reminder that, though history remembers this as the Isin-Larsa period, this is very much a multipolar era. Abisare celebrates his ninth year as the year in which he smote Isin with his weapons, but would live only another two years to enjoy his primacy in the region. When he passes his throne on to his son, the transition into an age of constant warfare has been completed. Sumuel of Larsa and Bur Swen of Isan would spend the next 20 years competing with each other, with other minor contenders of the region, and with the new warlord of Babylon, Sumu-la-el. But what happened to Sumu-abum, you might be wondering, if you can even keep track of these very similar ancient names? What happened to the founder of the city of Babylon? Well, part of the problem is that records for this period are a mess, as I've said before, and will say multiple times again. Sumu'abum is definitely first, but then the two seem to reign concurrently, even though some later records will call them the first and second kings of Babylon, while other records will drop Sumu'abum entirely. 
The best interpretation I can find is that Sumu Abum created a confederation of tribes centered around Babylon, but each tribe still had a fair bit of latitude to act independently, and Sumu Lael was a major figure who instigated his own military campaigns, but would come to sole kingship in time. In any case, the Amorites that are centered in Babylon have a small strip of territory along one branch of the Euphrates, and while their exact territorial extent in any year is ambiguous, it seems likely that much of their wealth and strength comes from continued nomadic activities, even though they are now operating from a territorial base. However, in the same year as Ur Ninurta's death and the general fracturing of the Sumerian political map, some branches of this group, possibly under Sumula El's leadership, occupies the city of Kisura and from this base strikes out to conquer the much more impressive city of Uruk. But we can't let the Babylonians get too far ahead of the other kings. Bur-Sin of Isan needs to assume the throne from his father, and the first thing we will see in his first year name is that he is the first king of Isan in a hundred years who hasn't claimed godhood. In fact, of the major kings of the age, none are currently claiming personal divinity in their official documents, almost certainly a reflection of the much reduced scope of each kingdom. We will see this mortal son of a self-proclaimed god sharply on the back foot following the disastrous battle of Adab, and his first years are spent improving the city walls of Isim, then constructing fortifications in the area. Bursin will be able to engage militarily with his neighbors at various points, but it seems he is in constant fear of a direct invasion, since he spends a few middle years constructing a pair of massive walls on the Euphrates River. While Bursin is hiding behind walls in this brave new world, Sumuel of Larsa is going to spend his entire reign playing whack-a-mole with the many minor powers that are trying their luck. In his fourth year, Sumuel wins a battle against the combined forces of the much-diminished Kazalu Marad and their ally of convenience, the Manana dynasty in the North Akkadian region at the city of Akasum, far in the north. Why was Larsa, a city in South Sumer, doing battle so far in the north? There could well have been political factors lost to us, but one simple explanation is that Sumuel is a wannabe Sargon, thinking that with the defeat of Isan, widely viewed as the successor of Ur, which was in turn the successor of Akkad, the time was ripe for a new successor state to quickly sweep up all the tiny kingdoms and reforge the Mesopotamian Empire. If his ambitions truly are so grand, he isn't exactly wrong, but it is going to take a much greater man than he to accomplish the vision. Still, the next year, he makes great strides towards regional hegemony by taking the city of Uruk away from Kisara and its Amorite masters. If all the chronology is matching up, this would be the third or fourth time Uruk has changed hands in 20 years, surely a rough experience for the venerable city. If Larsa still holds Ur, which is never really certain, though nowhere stated not to be the case, then Larsa now has no threats to the south, having collected all the major cities of the southern Euphrates. Sumuel then resumes the canal-digging projects that his father Abisare had died in the middle of, the ones which were meant to allow Larsa access to the closed-off north of the river. 
but instead of merely digging, Sumuel finds an excuse to conquer in this too, attacking the minor cities of Lugal Sin and Pinaritim to secure the land needed to complete the canal network. Don't bother looking for those towns on the map. I'm not even sure they show up in the historical record anywhere but this one mention, and were likely barely more than villages. In the next year, we get a bit of chronological confusion again, but also hints that the various warlords and kings were not just fighting each other, but scheming together as well. Both Sumuabum of Babylon and Sumuel record in this year that they conquer the cities of Kisara and Sabum, along with a string of nearby villages, with the Babylonians retaking Kisura and Larsa taking Sabum and the villages. But wasn't Kisara already controlled by Sumulael and his sub-tribe of Babylonian Amorites? We're already coming to see that poor Kisura, on the banks of the central branch of the Euphrates River, just south of Nippur, is a city in the wrong place at the wrong time, with one scholar estimating that it changes hands on average every five years for this 60-year period. Sumulael, meanwhile, appears to have moved his capital to Uruk after conquering it. This left the city open to the armies of Isan. Bursin has just completed his walls on the banks of the Euphrates and jumps on the chance of a key strategic city being nearly undefended following Sumulael's departure. But getting on the wrong side of the Babylonian Amorites, and already being the long-time rival of Larsa, lead to an attack from both sides that appear to have kicked Bursin completely off from that section of the Euphrates. The momentary alliance between the Babylonian Amorites and Larsa would prove to be short-lived, however. A few years before all this, the city of Kish, which had become independent at about the same time as Babylon, had been taken over by Sumuabum's Amorite Confederation, only a year after the joint Babylonian Larsen revenge campaign over Kisura. The two would be fighting in the city of Kish, presumably an extension of Sumuel of Larsa's imperial ambitions. Sumuel would win the battle. Sumuel would win the battle, though wins himself no friends and process, and though the victory was glorious, it would prove to be hollow, since Larsa as of yet lacked the strength to project its power reliably to the opposite side of Sumer, and would be unable to hold the city for long. This turn in fortunes for Lagash likely follows the currents of the canal projects. It seems that Larsa, by this point, has access to a number of different points on different branches of the Euphrates River, giving them, in good years, quite a lot of logistical options. But the network of canals running across miles and miles of flat plains of Mesopotamia were essentially impossible to defend, and it seems likely that someone, possibly Isin, possibly the Amorites, was sending small armed detachments into the central Sumerian plain to clog canals and divert waterways. To combat this, Sumuel conquers a small town in a strategic location at the mouth of Isin's primary canal and spends some time blocking it off and damming the river, almost certainly coming under assault while he did so. Though this section of Bursin's rule has no surviving year names, so it's harder to say what's going on over in Isin. 
we do know that much of Bursin's later rule was spent in religious activities. And around this time, he dies after about 20 years on the throne of what appears to be natural causes. At some point before his death, in the last year or two, he reconquered the city of Nippur, though little is known about this. He is succeeded by his son Lipit Enlil, who is almost a complete blank in the historical record. One assumption I have seen is that he may have left us no record because having the army of Larsa literally at the mouth of the city's primary canal occupied his entire attention for most of his five years. That said, even with this military conflict, surviving accounting records from this city show a fair amount of economic prosperity in Lipit Enlil's reign, despite how seemingly desperate the situation was, and he appears to have retained control of Nippur for his entire life, and probably died of natural causes. With his rival Bursin's death, and Issen bottled up with the damming of the Euphrates River and decades of canal projects to alter the flow of water in the region, Sumuel was able to retake the city of Ur, which had been taken by Issen at some point in all this mess, possibly at the end of the last generation of kings, around when Ur-Ninurta retook Nippur, but honestly, it's hard to keep track of it all. But the point isn't to get lost in the weeds of places and people. The point of this episode is to get a sense of the flow of the era. We're a few decades now into a century that will look like this, not just here, but up in Assyria as well, and over west in modern-day Syria. The most important is to get a sense of how each city is moving up or down, and plenty of history books write off this whole era as nothing more than Isin declining from its peak while Larsa gains strength. But of course, we've already seen that in the details, it's much more than that. Isin may not be the power that it once was, but we've seen it under a few kings since Urnanurta, and each one has had different ambitions for their town, from the aggressive religious focus of Urnanurta to the defensive-minded Bursin, who snatched at the opportunity of the undefended Kasura and got burned for his trouble. At the same time, a massive social movement is occurring outside of the written record with the collecting of disparate Amorite tribes under the most successful of war leaders. This period sees the Manana rise and create a kingdom in the north, running at times from Eshnunna to Kish, as well as the Kazalu Marad dynasty in the wealthy and secure west edge of the Euphrates Valley. And of course, the bursting onto the scene of the confederation that bases itself in Babylon. But even though we tend to name these tribal groups after the towns they come to dominate, they exist in this age as a sort of hybrid. When Sumulael takes Uruk, he doesn't add it to his growing empire. He picks up stakes and walks his whole kingdom over there, leaving what he once had behind. Why keep it, is what the nomad king must have asked himself, since there's something better over there and the old town is too heavy to carry with me. The borders of all these tribes shift like smoke on a windy day, and are nearly impossible to pin down from year to year, reflecting the fact that while the economic life of the cities continued as best it could under their rule, the military might that secured the cities wandered along the unwritten whims of people unused to sitting in one place for too long. 
and Lars's rise is far from an uninterrupted ascendancy, especially after Gungunum's death, with plenty of gains offset by a chronic inability to control the waterways that are vital for its continued growth. And now we have Sumuel, a character who fits quite neatly the archetype of Mesopotamian conqueror that we've seen a dozen times in history already. But the realities of the outside world and the limits of his city's resources and manpower prevent him from becoming the next Sargon. And thus, an almost hero fades into obscurity. Sumuel is nearing the end of his life now, and his last seven-year names commemorate installing a priestess of Nana in the city of Ur, a woman who was probably one of his daughters. At the very end of his reign, he may have deified himself, and seems to have written a large number of inscriptions in the city of Ur, at least ceremonially abandoning completely the city of Larsa in a megalomaniacal bid for universal hegemony that, by all accounts, went absolutely nowhere in these final years. At some point, he defeated the city of Umma, though the days when Lagash and Umma could drive politics were long over. While Larsa had tied up Issan with its absolutely incredible project of resetting the flow of the Euphrates River, the Amorites of Babylon continue to move around. Sumu-Abum is in most histories replaced by Sumu-La-El, usually judged by the prevalence of his year names compared to his earlier predecessor, and it is Sumu-La-El that is usually claimed as the ancestor of the dynasty that will eventually bring Babylon to glory. Some have concluded from this that Sumu-Abum dies right around now, but there are events sometimes dated to later on in which Sumu-Abel is said to be involved. Of course, with the mess of chronology, it could be that some people are simply using different dating systems, or it's even been proposed that Sumu-Abum and Sumu-Lu-El are actually the same person. But I think it most likely that Sumula-El has simply eclipsed his peer in power in a political and not wholly adversarial fashion. Sumula-El's biography up to this point has been fairly difficult to pin down, as should by now be fairly obvious. Instead of empire building, it almost seems as if he went on expeditions, defeating a number of cities, but not seeming to conquer or hold very many of them. He acts as if he's halfway between being a civilized king and a nomadic raider, taking plunder and moving on. However, by the 1880s, when he moves to the city of Babylon and supplants Sumu-Abum, he does seem to take Babylon as a power base rather than moving from place to place as he had done previously, and settles down to a certain extent. One of the first things that he does is finish up the first wall of Babylon. Even at this early period, it's believed to have been a fairly impressive structure, likely one of the greatest assets of the city during this early period. He then spends the next decade accumulating a large body count, attacking Kazalu, Eshnuna, and the Manana of Kish, then a peculiar campaign in which he attacks Kazalu for the particular goal of getting a man named Yazir El, who is otherwise unknown to the historical record, though he must have done something notable to get on Sumula-El's bad side. Then he returns to Kish and manages to destroy the high walls that had been constructed by Sumu-Abum only a generation previously when it had been under that tribe's dominance. But none of that matters. 
all those conquests will be fought over again and again for the next century. His next step is what really matters. It is now somewhere around 1865 BCE, about the years that Bursin and Sumuel died. Sumuel has started using his wealth from all these military victories to do properly civilized things, like building irrigation and temples around his small town, forming the base of what will become the world's greatest city. And now, in this year, Sumuel brings god Marduk into the city and constructs a massive temple and throne for the god. Marduk is a god brought in from somewhere else, possibly the city of Sippar, though Sippar in turn may have gotten it from the Amorite nomads. But for the most part, he's been a minor deity until now, likely the personal deity of one of the tribes that have now parked themselves in Babylon. His exact status is unclear in these early days. He may have been still a personal god of the ruling tribe, or he could already be the patron god of the city. But with the arrival of Marduk in Babylon, the initial walls constructed, and the supposed ancestor of the later kings enthroned, we have the three elements that make up the founding of the city of Babylon in the minds of later Mesopotamians. Not that anyone's going to think of it in those terms at this time. It will be nearly a century before Babylon rises from the melee as the great uniting empire of the Middle Bronze Age. But this period is the humble beginning of a proud city. Next week, the story will pick back up right here in the year 1865 and continue to see Isin, Larsa, Manana, Malgium, Uruk, and Babylon squabble endlessly over control of places we can't even locate on a map. I do promise, however, that next week, in addition to these ceaseless conquests, we get a fair bit of palace intrigue and even a moment of peace to complement it. So join us next week for a king who accidentally dethrones himself, popular revolts against the ceaseless mad warfare, and the practical consequences of so many ambitious men. Thank you for listening.